The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. This moment, incomparable, profound, rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. It can be known, it can be seen, we can be fully aware of it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. Good evening. Good evening. Let's assume an upright position, whether in a chair or on a cushion. And if you are sitting in a chair, ensure that both feet are solidly grounded on the floor. Upright backs, make sure your back and buttocks is pushed to the rear of the chair. And place your hands on your palm, uh, place your palms on your lap. Likewise, if on a cushion, we want to be in an upright position. And just allow your eyes to gently close. Let's bring our attention to our bodies. And just take a moment be fully aware of how they are feeling in this very moment. Are they relaxed? Are they rushed? Is body stressed? Uncomfortable? Just notice any tension in any muscles. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. With each exhalation, just allow the body to drop into the seat while still maintaining an upright posture. Keep your awareness, your attention in the body, following each breath as you inhale, following each breath as you exhale. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. Continue to breathe deeply. With each inhalation, <coughs> extending the length of the breath, when you pause, be fully aware of the breath 
when you exhale, extend it each time, having your attention riding the breath, following it in, following it out. your next inhalation you want to direct the breath in and downward slightly behind the area of the navel and as you inhale allow the abdomen to expand when you hold your breath keep the abdomen taut <coughs> and again when you exhale relax your muscles and settle in Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. Stay with your breath. If you find your mind wandering into a conversation or a thought, or some bodily sensation. All you need to do is to just notice that's what's happening. Come back to your breath and start again. While staying with your breath, bring your full awareness to the experience sitting in the seat or on a cushion, the sound of my voice in this room, the people next to you, behind you and in front of you, just simply allow your awareness to fully absorb this moment, this place, here and now. Continue to follow your breath, once again extending each inhalation without stressing or forcing and extending each exhalation without stressing or forcing. Most importantly, stay with your breath. Keep your attention each inhalation, each exhalation, as if in this moment you are too tired or too ill to 
do anything about anything. As if in this moment there's nowhere else to go, nothing else to do, no one special to be. Just now, just sitting, find that you have either nodded off or are thinking or indulging a thought or sensation, just notice that, come back to your next inhalation and start again. Stay with your breath. Breathing in. Breathing out. Just observing it all happening. Nowhere to go. Nothing to do. No one to be. As you continue to breathe in and out deeply and precisely, <coughs> allow your awareness to once again kind of scan your body. 
simply noticing where there may still be some stress, some tension. Perhaps in the lower back, the area behind the shoulder blades, the shoulders and neck muscles. One more subtle yet profound place we never think of, the facial muscles in the jaw, around the brow and forehead. Just take a moment and breathe into any one of those areas. And as you exhale, just allow them to relax. allow your jaw muscle to loosen up, allow the jaw to drop, the brow and forehead muscles to loosen up, the neck and shoulder, the shoulder blades, the lower back, Just letting go. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. Once again, take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. Open your eyes. I remember one day sitting for a long time <coughs> on the edge of a summer lake, watching the far shore. I could see early light flood the water in the distance, and this somehow made the other side seem exotic. Every morning I'd sit on my small edge of lake and watch the other side, imagining that a certain mystery awaited me there. With each day, its call grew larger. Finally, on the seventh day, I had to go there, and, up earlier than usual, I rode across the lake, beached my small boat, and sat in the same exact spot I had been watching. As I looked about, the aura of otherness 
I had seen from my daily perch was gone. I was somewhat undone, for though this far shore was beautiful and peaceful, the wet clump of shore I ran my hand through was the same as where I'd begun. I started to laugh at myself, for looking back at where I'd been sitting every day, I saw early light flood the water in the distance, and now where I'd been living seemed exotic. Now a certain mystery called me back to where I was. So often we imagine that there is more full of gold than here. It is the same with love and dreams and the work of our lives. We see the light everywhere but where we are and chase after what we think we lack, only to find Humbly, it was with us all along. A great reading, and at the same time a sad indictment about most of us, probably in this room and everywhere. One of the biggest mistakes made by so many people about such practices as meditation or mindfulness is that somehow meditation or other practices of mindfulness are magical and have some inherent power to them. And so very much like going on vacation or going on a spiritual retreat, we imagine that if we do this, things will change and we will become different and life will become more or better only to find that even though we may have a great time on that vacation or have a great experience on that retreat, it doesn't last long for us. And one of the reasons why it does not last long for us, or the reason why it does not last long for us, is that it never had any inherent magical power to offer us. As Mark Nepo's writing that I just shared with you, <coughs> We often and regularly imagine more, better, and different, and always somewhere else than where we are. And what we fail to recognize, especially spiritual people, because much of what is being sold and has been sold since the late 60s as spirituality, is a, another form of what Chungyam Trungpa called spiritual materialism. We consume as many spiritual experiences as possible with the same objective, the same goal, to have more, to feel better, and to have our lives become different. And this very pursuit of happiness, as I mentioned early morning, I woke up about 5.30 and thought these words and put them on Facebook. And as I mentioned in the words that I put on Facebook, this very pursuit of happiness, the very act of always pursuing something more, something better, something different than here and now, robs us of life here and now, and has somehow convinced a lot of us that, <coughs> you know, life is always going to be somewhere in the future, 
that life. The best is yet to come. And so this quintessential indictment about most human beings on the planet today is so important to understand that I want to suggest to you that until we really see it for ourselves, suffering will compound. It compounds for us individually, and as it compounds for the individual, it goes that the world's suffering will compound. And you've often heard me say that <coughs> the culture, the very culture we live in, and this is important also because it's important that you understand that the very culture you and I grew up in and live in presently is not conducive for happiness, health, and well-being. And I say that because it is important on the path of using spiritual practices such as meditation and Zen and mindfulness, we need to see for ourselves that most of our behavior, including our points of view, including our position, that here is never enough, that <coughs> that far off distant shore where we imagine the grass to be greener. As I said again on Facebook, for most of us, the grass is greener on the other side because we never spend time on our own lawn, you see. We are always imagining the neighbor's lawn as where everything is that we are looking for. And most of that behavior, even that point of view, is by nature habitual. And if we are ever going to use meditation or mindfulness living skillfully, as the Buddha would say, would say, we need to become really clear, very precise, about the habitual behaviors that we regularly commit to, including our reactions to external triggers and circumstances and situations that uh, stimulate any peculiar reaction of ours. In fact, all of my reactions to every trigger, to every external stimulus, until I have done the work that meditation and <coughs> spirituality offers us, all of them, without exception, are nothing more than mechanical and learned responses. And when we take all of those behaviors and we place them together in one part of the room and we look at them, their dominating characteristic and their dominating motivation is to always take us away from the moment, to distract us from here and now. Because somewhere early on in life, we learned that here and now has very little to offer us. But the truth of the matter is, when you examine all of the great teachers, Buddha and all of the many other contemplative, the desert fathers and mothers, the Trappist monks in the desert, and so forth, when you read any of their work, they are insistent about, as Zen insists, that everything we are looking for is here and now. And when we are not in the here and now, it's kind of like <coughs> the 60 minutes or the minute you spent dreaming about tomorrow is 60 minutes of your life you will never get back. You have lost forever. 
And it is training ourselves, or as I prefer saying, retraining. When you come to the monastery and you enter Zen training, I say to you, you are about to relearn everything you've learned about how to live now, how to live in this moment. So one of the, one of the parts, if you will, of this practice of meditation and mindfulness living has to do with what Dogen called the study of the self. Zen master Dogen, who set up all of the Zen schools in Japan, spoke about the self in this way. He said, <coughs> this self that is always craving and desiring and always convincing us to pursue more, to pursue better, and to pursue different does not exist. There is no fixed self at any time that I can call myself. So as I often say, it is stupid to spend your life trying to change yourself when all the while the self is changing anyway, you see. And we are constantly, when again you examine the motivation of much of our thinking process and our choices and decisions, has to do with changing something something in the moment for reasons we do not understand because one of the illusions that this behavior creates in us is that just simply because I'm not feeling comfortable in this moment or simply because certain things are array in my environment that something's wrong when in fact that's not necessarily so. Every single time we find ourselves disenchanted with the moment, disenchanted with the way we are feeling, disenchanted with the way things are going, the ego, which does not exist, and if it doesn't, we'll talk about what it is in a moment, the ego goes immediately to fight or flight. It goes immediately to fight or flight, and both primordial positions has to do with getting you out of the moment, getting you out of the place. You perceive, and perception is rarely reality. You perceive to be inadequate or insufficient, or even dangerous at times. When you take a look at the design function of ego, as including Freud and others, as well as the mystical fathers and mothers and Zen masters examined, <clears throat> when you take a look at this ego, you discover very quickly that it has a singular purpose and a singular objective. Now remember, when we are talking about ego, we are talking about the very mechanism that regularly and consistently keeps us in a stress-filled experience. Ego keeps us in a stress-filled experience because it views itself in relationship to the rest of the world as something separate from the rest of the world and that the world is to either be conquered or to be suspicious about and always on guard about. Because the singular objective of this egocentric part of our personality, which is what ego really is, Ego is that part of our human consciousness that is designed specifically, that has evolved over the centuries as man has evolved and man's consciousness has evolved. 
it has been de it was designed and uh, you know evolved into survival of the being survival of the being it was that stuff that told the first cavemen if you will run there's a fire run there's a disaster hunt there's not enough food watch out for the winter and so forth and to the extent <coughs> back then at least its extent was limited to just that, what I call real danger, real concerns. As man evolved over centuries, that definition of ego, that specific motivation of ego, evolved also from survival of the being to survival of the being and anything the being considers itself to be. And when you take a look at the illusion created by this fearful way of being, this, you know, we prefer to call stressful way of being, because we don't like the word fearful. It seems to denote certain things about us that we don't want to hear. But the truth of the matter is stress is nothing more <laughs> than the body's experiencing in that moment fear of either the moment or of what it pursues perceives to be coming in the future. And that's another quality that you need to be aware of. Whenever we are feeling at e diseased, if you will, whenever we are feeling stressed, we are never in the moment. We are always in the future. Stress is always about fear of what we perceive may come if we don't or if we do this or that. And that entire mechanical process, it is a mechanical process, it is habitual in nature, is usually misleading and unreliable. So when we take a look at that fact of mind's processing of circumstances and situations regularly, it is essential, as the Buddha would say, that we realize the need the requirement to awaken to something more skillful than the way we normally do it. So if we are ever going to really change our experience of life and experience what everyone has ever taught since the beginning of time, all of the teachers have taught the same thing. All of the joy, all of the happiness, all of the peace of mind and body <coughs> is already in you and in this moment, in this here and now. And the surest way to not experience that at any given time, that is to say, at any given moment of our lives when we are feeling as if life is lacking, we are lacking, or something is wrong, <coughs> we need to stop and take a look at what's going on in that moment. And what you will almost exclusively and regularly discover is that the mind is having a conversation about the future. And any conversation about the future is delusional because the future is not here yet. In fact, the future will never be here. Or it is having that conversation about the past. And usually when it's thinking about the past, it is either trying to change something that happened, or <coughs> it is craving such as the good old days. 
So when we do the real work of meditation, which, as Dogen said, had to do with studying this self, we call myself, we call me, and examining how it is functioning from moment to moment in our bodies and in our life, when we do the real work, we notice that our thoughts, and this is important because every emotional experience the body experiences, the body is expressing from moment to moment, is generated by our thoughts. The Buddha said, we are what we think. Life is what we think for us. So when you take a look at the thought processing going on in those stressful or fearful or worrisome moments, it is always examining life in the past or in the future. It is never in the present moment. And one of the reasons why it's never in the here and now is because you can't talk about or think about the here and now. The moment you try to talk about the here and now, it's what? Already the past. It's already the past. The moment I talk about any moment in my life, I am always talking about something in the past tense. And when we are in the past or in the future, it is natural or the mechanical response, if you will, is to always handle the future or the past with, again, this fight-or-flight position. We are always protecting ourselves from something that never comes or running away from something that is dead and gone. To be in the present moment involves a lot more, particularly, for example, when we practice this form of meditation that we just did, for example. Most of the people make a mistake between concentration and mindfulness. So what we try to do is concentrate on the breath, concentrate on following the breath. And in the beginning, that is a very natural approach that the mind takes because the teacher is saying, follow your breath. And so mind interprets that as concentrate on that moment. But concentration and mindfulness are actually two distinctly different positions. Concentration is only part of the formula, bringing our attention. Another thing the Buddha taught was, we are where we are paying attention. Wherever our attention is, that's where we are. So again, if we are giving our attention to the thought, remember what I said a moment ago, every experience in my body, all emotional feelings of the body are thought generated. So when I'm thinking about tomorrow, or when I'm thinking about the past, when I'm thinking about the moment I'm in the past, or the moment at least has passed before me, when I'm thinking about any of that, the natural response of the body, the mechanical or habitual response, is what we often refer to as stress. It is only in learning how, or better, more accurately, I want to say, relearning, because when we were very little, we knew, we knew this. We were masters at being in the present moment. We were masters at being in the present moment. I took my four-year-old to a dance class this morning, 
and <coughs> the teacher asked her where she was last week, was she sick? And I didn't know that because her mother had her that weekend, and I said, did mommy bring you uh, to the dance class? And the teacher suddenly said, uh, it's too far back, she, she doesn't even remember that. She doesn't even remember 24 hours ago. So when we were very little, we knew how to stay present in the moment. Life was happening in the moment, in our small few years of experience. As we began to, as we started to form and grow and mature, if you will, we learned the lessons of disenchantment. We learned the lessons of more, better, and different. In fact, again, if you go back to what I said a moment ago, we are not going to find the solutions to the world's problems or to our problems in our culture. We're not going to find it there because our entire culture is exclusively about more, better, and different. Even our Constitution, even the Declaration of Independence says that you know, we have these inalienable rights to life, to liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And as I often tell people, we Americans have mastered the pursuit of happiness, but very little life and very little freedom, very little liberty if you will. So in order to ever truly experience the fullness that life is, <coughs> lacking nothing as the Buddha taught, always perfect and complete, in order to experience that on a more consistent and regular basis, and in order to feel liberated from the stuff in our life that trigger this fear and worryment and stress in the body, we need to learn how to be where all of that is sourced. And all of that is sourced within you here and now. And it has always been. So again, when we take a look at the mechanical or habitual behavior of <coughs> ourselves, we find that most of it is learned either culturally or learned uh, even in religion, learned uh, definitely in politics and so forth. Our entire society is always about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be better or tomorrow may not be better. But if you take a look again at yourself and how, you know, the perception, when we wake up in the morning, we don't think about the moment. We really think about the sun on our face. We really think about the warmth of the bed. We rarely wake up with a sense of gratitude that we are in a house where others may be in the streets doing the frost last night. We rarely think about that. What we immediately go to, most of us, when we wake up in the morning, is what we have to do today. And what we have to do today is in the future. So from the moment we wake up, we need to see where our mind goes. And it goes always to what's next. It is always going to what's next. Even when it gets to what's next, it's thinking what's next. And even when it gets to that what's next, it's thinking what's next. Just watch people's itinerary in the day and the pace that they are moving regularly at. We are always running to. And when we are running to, we are missing what is present here and now. And when we miss 
what is present here and now because our focus or our attention is on the future, what we have to do, where we have to go, getting there on time and so forth, <coughs> we are robbing ourselves of a big chunk of our lives which we will never get back, which we will never get back. One of the other uh, poor commentaries or disastrous commentary about this particular way of living our lives I think was quoted by Robert Redford in the movie Out of Africa. And there's a scene in the movie where Merle Street, who's his lover, is trying to convince him to be a certain type of lover. And she's commenting on how he's always so stubborn, how he's always living his own life. And she kind of like asks why. And he says to her, I don't want to get to the end of my life realizing I lived someone else's. You see. And when we are always in the future, that's exactly what's going on. We are living someone else's life because someone taught us to pursue. We learned to pursue more. We learned to pursue better. We learned to pursue different. And when we learned that, we learned it from someone or a group of people, whatever it may be for us. And when we live that without ever examining it, without ever recognizing it, especially until it's too late, you know, most of the time we start to think about now. I have never, having been a heart attack patient myself, I have never, 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 never met someone who's either had a heart attack or has some kind of terminal illness like cancer who didn't say, Life's too short. Most of the stuff we think about is just bullshit. I gotta learn to be in the moment. And if they're fortunate, and I mean that literally, they do learn how to be in the moment. And maybe spend the rest of their lives, however long that may be, truly being alive and living the life <coughs> that they can call theirs. But most of us say that in the same way that we go on a spiritual retreat to some very beautiful monastery, some very beautiful retreat center in, the, in, you know, in Sonoma or Machu Picchu or over in the Himalayas or some other place, gorgeous, the Caribbean and all of that, and we come back and we say, wow, you see? And seven days from now, we're right back at, I need to go on retreat again, you see? Because there isn't more, there isn't better, there isn't different. Everywhere we go, there is suffering. You may not see it on retreat, you may not see it on the vacation, because the mind sees only what it's looking for. So we expect retreat to be this suffering-less experience. And if you know anything about people who run retreats, they go to great lengths to make sure of that. In the same way that the Buddha's own father, when he was a young boy, who was told by the prophets that his son could either end up inheriting the kingdom from him or become a priest or a monk of some sort. So his father went to great lengths to do everything possible to convince his son that he wanted to be a prince, you know. 
So he made his life so pleasurable, he made it so perfect, so that when young Siddhartha <coughs> traveled outside the palace walls for the first time, was shocked, so shocked that he wept when he saw a crippled man, when he saw someone very sick, and when he saw someone dead. It surprised him so much. And aren't we like that also in life? We know that death is inevitable for all of us. But how many times are we like shocked to hear somebody died? You see? Or how many times are we shocked to hear this or that which comes with life? And that shock or dismay that seems to be present in that moment is not because death is all that bad, and it's not because you know, illness is all that bad. It certainly can be painful to the body. I've been there and I know how that feels. But as Abraham Lincoln, who was both bipolar and manic depressant and saved the Union once said, we are as happy as we choose to be. You see? Coming from someone like that, we should listen. You see? We are as happy as we choose to be. So the dismay and disenchantment is because much of what we claim to be life that we are living is the fantasy, is what isn't exists, which doesn't exist. Life is impermanency, life is suffering, and life is birth and death, the Buddha said. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama used to say to his students, used to say to us, <coughs> good life, good death, good death, good life. And what he was saying was that when we resolve life as it really is, there is so much we realize we are missing in every moment. In every moment. And I'm not just talking about the opportunities. You know, when I'm with my daughter, I make it a point and I made a promise when she was still in her mother's womb that when I was with her, she had my full attention. And when she's with me and I give her my full attention, I don't need anything. In fact, if you listen to people who talk to me you know, about being with her, they'll say, he is the happiest when he's with that kid. And they're right, I am. Because she teaches me to stay with her in the moment. We were sitting watching one of her favorite cartoons one night, and my cell phone was in the kitchen. And it rang. And I said, you need to get up, Katie, so I can go answer the phone. She turned around and placed her hand on my chest like this, and said, Daddy, be happy where you are. <laughs> Who's the Zen master? Be happy where you are, she said. And she was right. I let the phone ring until it was done, and it was a marketer anyway, you know? And I was happy where I was. And when I am where I am, that is always so. Happy where we are, even in those difficult times, because <coughs> This mechanical or habitual learned response that we all have as a characteristic of our living, it's not a characteristic of us, it's a, characteristic, it's a character of our living, the way we live. This um, way of living also convinces us that when some catastrophe does show up in our life, we are doomed. The first place it goes is, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And the truth of the matter is, as the Buddha taught, each of us possess 
And this moment, this here and now, possesses every solution to every problem that rises. Never underestimate your own power and overestimate the problem. That is a formula for living life with strength and confidence. <coughs> we always underestimate our power, our ability to meet those catastrophes in life. And that's, I want you to hear this, and that's what generates the experience that feels like that. Not because that moment really is bigger than we are, or that catastrophe or tr trouble is bigger than we are, but because we go there, and again, what did I say? Every emotion, every feeling that the body is experiencing in this moment is thought generated. So if I habitually go to this place where I'm not sure if I'm going to make it through this one, how many times have you made it through what you were not sure you were going to make it through? Think about that. We do, don't we? We get through it. We survive. We do, you see. But remember those moments when it was going on, we were convinced we weren't going to. You know, it's kind of like, you know, it didn't hit me till the second day in the hospital when I had the second heart attack. It was then that I thought, I'm not going to make it. But all the way up until then, it was kind of like I was in this very detached experience watching this going on in my body, watching the doctors and nurses do their thing, the EMTs at night, thinking about my daughter who slept through the whole thing, let's see, slept through the whole thing, okay, along with my dogs. The dogs and my daughter slept through my heart attack. It was fortunate that I got up thinking I had agita, otherwise I'd have been dead. And I'm glad that didn't happen because she would have woke up finding that, you understand? But just totally detached. And then the second one happened, and it wasn't until then, and I can tell you, looking back at that moment, I just... I can see distinctly that what I did was went into the story. I moved from being present to just what was going on. And when you're present to what's just going on, you know what comes up naturally? Trust. When you are fully present to the here and now, that trust issue gets resolved. It doesn't get resolved by trying to trust or looking for the evidence to trust before we trust, which is the way we normally do it, isn't it? The way we normally trust life or trust ourselves is we've got to have the evidence. Show me that I can trust this. But real trust isn't that. Real trust is just a function of staying present to the moment. And <coughs> I often say that staying present to the moment has to do with what's synonymous to that is just take care of business. It's what I call taking care of business spirituality. Staying present to the moment is taking care of business spirituality. And, you know, as I was listening, which I'm learning more and more to do less, to the news about the politics of Washington, uh, if you follow it regularly, you notice that what always happens when there's a problem in Washington, what always happens is that the focus is not on fixing it. That's why nothing gets done. The focus is on blaming someone for it. If you've ever watched it, that's what the focus is. 
Who do we blame for this? Meanwhile, the problem is compounding and compounding and so forth. Well, the same thing happens to me when I am not focused on just taking care of business, but rather focused on why is this happening? Why did she do this? Why did he say that? Why did that? Boom, boom, boom. Nothing gets done. The suffering compounds. So, and, and there's very little trust in that moment, either of myself or the object of my blame, if you will. So the practice is to bring me back to the situation and the circumstance without attaching any real meaning to it and just take care of business. Just take care of business. Take a moment <coughs> to really look at the next stress-filled time in your life and examine what your thought process is in that moment. And you will see that your thought process is a particular way and you will notice that that particular thought process, as long as you're thinking that, indulging that story that you keep telling yourself, the fear, the worryment, the self-doubt exists. So mindfulness has to do with really being aware of when I'm in the story of going through the valley of the shadow of death. Or, you know, Winston Churchill once said, if you're, if you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> If you're going through hell, keep going. And what he was saying to us again is what he said all through World War II. We will meet the challenge of this war, and we will succeed. We will do whatever is necessary. We will fight them on the shores. We will fight them in the air. We will fight them in the seas. You know? Just take care of business. And that's how he lived his life. He saw a problem and took care of business, whatever that was. Just take care of business. Mindfulness has to do with first being aware that the problem is being the problem or the difficulty to arrive at the solution is being generated by my own thought process. I am generating the experience of fear and worryment. I am generating that by indulging thoughts that can only lead to and end up in the valley of the shadow of death. I see or end up in hell each time I think those thoughts. So when we are meditating, the reason why we focus on the body is that the body is an instrument of communication. Quiet mind, quiet body. If we want to experience peace and release, we need to regularly quiet the mind. <coughs> the only way we quiet the mind is not by putting on some music and closing our eyes and meditating. We quiet the mind by, we may do it that way, as long as that's the way we've learned works to help us detach from storytelling, to help us detach from the mental process of thinking about what's going on. Whenever we think about catastrophe, Ego goes to catastrophe. It doesn't go to solution. It goes to catastrophe. And the reason why it goes to catastrophe, if you've been listening, is that its design purpose is to get you moving, to get you out of this. 
Now, there are always real danger and perceived danger. There's nothing in between. At every moment in our life, we are either dealing with real danger or perceived danger. Anybody here see the movie After Earth? Good. I get to tell you without you knowing. So it's a story Will Smith stars in it and his kid who was annoying in the movie but he stars in it too First, his first theatrical de debut if you will and it takes place somewhere like in 5027 and the earth has for centuries been gone <coughs> man fleed from the earth because of what it did to the environment and could no longer live there goes out into space and creates a new colony of civilization somewhere else uh, Will Smith plays this very mystical kind of like uh, the characters in Star Wars, the guys with the power. He plays a modern, well, that modern day type character. And he's called a ghost soldier. And he has, they are trained. There's this one particular dangerous monster, real dangerous monster. This, this is real danger. You know, whose sole purpose for existing is to kill human beings. And the ghost soldiers have trained themselves to be able to kill these creatures. And the reason why they've been able to, they are able to do that when no one else can is because the creature goes blind on their presence, cannot sense them, because they have learned how to control their fear. Because the creature follows them according to the, uh, help me out here, docs, the hormones or something, that the, yeah, pheromones that the body is, you know, puts out and so forth. So he goes on this uh, flight and he decides his, you know, his wife is saying, you know, your relationship with your son is terrible. He's, you know, he, you know, the typical story, terrible and so forth. And he's like this hard-nosed, hard-ass ghost soldier. But he melts down a little bit and he says, all right, son, you can come with me on this next journey. So he takes the kid with him. <coughs> the, the ship crashes onto the planet Earth, you're seeing. And he's got, you know, an unbelievable fractured leg from the crash. The kid's the only one that really survived. And so now the kid has to go looking for the other half of the, of the, of the spaceship, where is the thing that they can send a message to get help. So the rest of the story is about this kid becoming a ghost soldier in the next 90 minutes, if you will. And... So his father's communicating to him telepathically, and he repeatedly says this mantra to him. Fear is an illusion. Danger is real. Control your fear and meet your danger, skillfully and effectively. And I thought, very zen. <laughs> fear is an illusion, and then he says, Fear is a choice. It's optional. And the only reason why we buy into it, now this is me talking, we're back to the real world. <laughs> the only reason why we buy, in, buy into it is that we have habitually, I want you to remember this word habit and habitual behavior tonight. We have habitually learned to do that. We habitually go there every time there's a perceived or real danger going on in our immediate environment. <coughs> it is a habit to do that. 
And the only way we change habits, which is what spiritual training really is about, <coughs> learning how to respond, which means be responsible in the way we react to circumstances, learning how to respond to life rather than just react. So when we are meditating, there are two things going on at, at that time. We are, as I said a moment ago, studying this self. We are observing <coughs> my, for example, ability to stay with my breath. And when we observe ourselves not able to stay with the breath any moment or consistently, the next step is to notice again what thoughts are present when you are distracted. And what is the nature of those thoughts? Are they fearful? Are they worrisome? Are they desiring, craving, wanting to be somewhere else? Are they melancholy and you know thinking about the past? And in this way, we learn our habits. We learn that habitual behavior. And then we correct it, and this is the second part. This is why it is called training. We retrain ourselves to, re <coughs> to respond differently. So when the thoughts are always taking us away from the moment, by staying with our breath, by following it as we breathe in and following it as we breathe out, we are training the mind to stay. Even in those moments when we have wandered off, if you listen to the instruction, I said to you, just notice you've wandered off. And by that I mean you don't think about it, you don't you know, find blame, you don't say to yourself, oh, damn it, I should have this right by now, I've been meditating for three years. You don't do any of that. You just notice that and you come back to your breath. Why? That's the training. The training is bringing yourself back faithfully to this moment. And what are you doing when you're sitting and meditating in that way? You're just taking care of business. Breathing is business. It's essential for you to stay alive. Like I have said for the last 39 years of teaching meditation, if I cut off your food and water supply, you may last a couple of weeks. If I come over there and cut off your breathing, you'll be dead in a matter of moments. <laughs> if you don't believe breath is life, what's the matter with you? You see? So we are bringing ourselves back with the breath to where life is. Life is here, in the body, going on now, 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 now. We need to be where life is going on within us. Any questions? Hi, Beth. Hi. Uh, I'm not sure if this is relevant to your topic, but I was reading this morning, I think Christopher Titmus was the author, talking about the basic precept of Buddhism is dependent arising. And I probably have been taught about this a dozen times, mm -hmm. but I still have trouble grasping it. Could you talk a little bit about how this plays into habits and everything else? Well, that dependent arising is about habits. It says nothing just spontaneously happens. Everything that arises, for example, in the context of tonight's discussion, as I said a moment ago, how I am feeling in this moment 
is a function of whatever thought process. So my feelings, my emotions are dependent upon what I'm thinking. That's what we mean by dependent arising. <coughs> Everything has an origin, has a source that generates an effect. Everything has a cause that generates an effect. So the way we normally do it is that we feel a certain way and we say, something, somebody is doing this to me, you're saying. But the truth of the matter is something, somebody may be doing something to you. You know, it's not a denial of another person's, for example, offense <coughs> or harmful behavior towards you. But your experience of that, you're doing. You're generating it. Not by the thoughts themselves, because thoughts only have power to the degree that we attach to them. That's why there's a lot of talk in spirituality about detachment. To be detached <coughs> means at that moment I recognize that I'm really stuck in the story about what's going on. And I also recognize that it is the story that I'm stuck in that's generating the emotion, generating the experience. And that the only way I can change that is to detach from the story is to detach from the story. So <coughs> everything has a dependent origin. Everything is dependent originate. Okay? Nothing just happens. You don't just feel that way because you're just feeling that way. Every emotion is directly dependent upon the thought or thought process and the degree that I am attached, or as I prefer saying, indulging that story. So when I indulge the story about what someone did to me, okay, I am creating <coughs> this scenario of emotions that come with the story. It's kind of like, what did you think you were going to feel? You know, if you keep telling, if you keep, for example, let's say the story, and most stories do this. Most stories, when we are telling ourselves a story about why we can't be happy, okay, one of the prime characteristics of that story is that I am perceiving my role in the story as a victim. Okay? So all stories have players, actors on a stage, as Shakespeare said. And every one of the actors, as Shakespeare said, is always trying to get center stage. Okay? My attention. But <coughs> detachment, as Shakespeare said, is when I realize that the story is full of sound and fury signifying nothing, okay? So as long as I'm attached to the story, and the story again is, is, is fictional in nature. It may have some factual details about what, about what happened, but the fiction shows up when I start to see myself in the story as a victim of someone else's behavior. Truly, people do things to us, I've been there, and what they do to us injures us. But again, my liberation or cessation from that is entirely dependent upon me, because I'm the one generating the suffering with the story. And most of the time that is called forgiveness. And when you look at Webster's definition of forgiveness, it means to give up. It says to forgive is to give up, such as 
telling the story. To just stop doing that, okay? It's not what we mostly think about where we go over to the person, you know, for example, I grew up, learn, I learned Sicilian forgiveness. Sicilian forgiveness is this. I forgive you now, and then 10 years from now, you do the same thing, and I kill you. <laughs> you see? That's Sicilian forgiveness, all right? That's what we mean by Sicilian forgiveness. I forgive you, but don't do it again. You're dead the next time, you know, like that. But forgiveness, the definition of real forgiveness, has to do with my internal behavior. Has, I, I may not even ever tell you that I've forgiven you. It has to do with <coughs> me giving up the story. Because it's the story that keeps the emotions around, keeps the experience around. Now, that does not mean, for example, like I'd say to people, there's nothing wrong with having a thief in your house as long as you don't let him go near your jewelry, okay? Just as there's nothing wrong with having a bear in your backyard, which is a big thing in, in, in the pie lands occasionally, and everybody grabs their kids and pulls them in the house and get their guns, you see? But I say to people, there's nothing wrong with having a bear in your backyard as long as you know how to live with a bear in your backyard. So again, that particular teaching in Buddhism says to us, you are always the solution. You are the one that holds the power to your life. Act accordingly. Okay? Is that helpful? I, the idea if someone hurts you, then you forgive them. But to me, forgiveness is easy, but forgetting is hard. Well, see, forget, yeah. But <coughs> forgiveness is giving up the story that's involved with the difficulty of forgetting. Okay? So, and as I said a moment ago, it's not like <coughs> you steal something from me and then I forgive you and say, all right, come and look at my jewelry again. You know? It's not like that. Again, forgiveness is not I forgive you. It's I give up my resentment, my malice, or whatever it is that I have towards you and it's always for my benefit, it's not for your benefit. When I, when I forgive, it's not for the other person's benefit, it's for me. Forgiveness is for my benefit, it has nothing to do with you. I'm not doing this because I want you to feel better about yourself after you just killed me, you know. No, I'm doing this so that I can go on living, so that I can move on and get, it, get going with my life, rather than always in the past with what you did. <coughs> You know, I often tell young people when I've counseled them over the years, because this is a common theme with young people, when they get a little older, when they come to coaching or counseling with me, they want to talk about what their parents did to them, okay? And I always say to them, wait, don't tell me, because the moment you tell me what they did to you, you can't complain again. <laughs> you see? Because again. you can't complain again, <laughs> because you evidently have all the information you need to resolve that. And you're just not resolving it. You see? So, <coughs> again, is it worth losing your entire life in a story that is mostly fictional or in life that is always non-fictional? You see? 
And the only way we get into life, just as the only way we get into the moment, is to, as they said in Dragnet, just the facts. Just the facts. You see? And that's also part of the mindfulness training. We don't attach value statements to what's going on when we're, when we're examining our experience. We just tell the facts. And the fact is, you know, fearfulness is present. I don't say, fearfulness is present because of what my parents did to me. No. Fearfulness is present. Now, how do I resolve fearfulness power in me in that moment? And again, as I said a moment ago, it's about detachment. And we're learning how to really detach in meditation training. Because <clears throat> when you take that cushion, all that you're doing in that moment, and it's not really like all, it's, it's so quintessential, is that you're creating space for your life to show up for you in a way that you can examine it. Okay? That you can examine it. And the focus is always from an ob observation role. And the observer never has criticism or judgment of the object of its observation. Okay? And the purpose of that is, again, to see how, to what degree I am attached to the story I'm telling myself about my life. And then you start to break that detachment down. <coughs> Every time, and you don't break it down by, one of the things that I, I, I have a problem with, with, People saying, think positively all the time. No, think positively when things are positive. Okay? <laughs> That's when you think positively. When things are negative, you tell the truth about that and you take care of business. Most of the time, we don't see the solution that's always within us. Okay? Because we're not convinced the solution is within us. You know, we think, for example... <clears throat> they have to change. If I'm ever going to be happy, she's got to change. And again, I tell people, what do you get to do with that story? What do you get to do with that story? When that's your story, my life's going to be better when she changes. What do you get to do from that moment on? Blame. Huh? Blame. Suffer. Feel sorry for myself. Suffer. No, you get to wait. <laughs> And one of the things you need to know about that, waiting, they're never going to change. <laughs> they're waiting for you to change. You see? So whenever I relinquish the authority for my life to you, then i got to wait for you to do something about my life. And guess what? You can't do anything about my life. Because you can never know the fullness of my experience. Only I can know that. Nobody else in this room or on this planet can ever know the fullness of your experience. Only you can know that. Therefore it goes, only you have the solution. So Zen training is not about, and this is why it's so difficult for many people. When people, and you know, we, we ha we've been asking this question at the monastery for 39 years. You know, why isn't there numbers? Well, there isn't numbers because the difference between Zen training and other philosophical or theological um, <coughs> communities is that Zen says, you're the solution. Not God, not the teacher, certainly, not meditation, you. All we give you are the tools for you to discover that for yourself, and once discovered, which is often referred to as enlightenment, then your life will change. 
Because from there on, every time something shows up, you're not looking outside yourself. You're looking where the origin is. It's right here all the time. All the time. So that's what, you know, the ghost soldier meant when he said, fear is a choice. We can either choose to act on our fear, or we can choose to detach from the story that we tell ourselves that's generating the fear. And <coughs> I want you to take a moment to think about this question. In the course of just 24 hours, one day in your life, what percentage would you give for the amount of time you spend in the story as opposed to actually life? See, how much of your life is in your head rather than in your experience? And you will find that I, my number is 99%. When you really start to examine, we're in our heads in a story most of the time. We are always telling ourselves a story about the moment. You see? Always. I think that's why scientists are fascinating to most of us. Because they're, they're just looking at the facts. There's no story going on about it. It's looking, 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 and solving, and boom. <laughs> you see? So that, that's it. We are robbing ourselves of the present moment every time we are spending any time in the story we tell ourselves about life or particularly our life. So we need to detach, <coughs> stay out of our heads, go there only when it's necessary. And when you take a look at the course of the day, it's necessary to go to my head when I'm walking across the street and a tractor trailer is bowing down at me. That's necessary, you see. But most of everything else that goes on in the course of a day, I mean, I, you know what to do. And I'm training my daughter this. I've been training my daughter this since she was able to understand words. And I give her four mantras to recite each night, and one of those mantras is, you are capable. She says, I am, I am wonderful, I am beautiful, I am capable, I am loved. So every time she, she does this thing, and I think, fill me in if your girls do it, where she's got, where she's got to pick something up and she says, I can't pick it up. I, <laughs> I, I, I've got my hands full already. You pick it up for me, Daddy. And I just remind her, you're capable, pick it up. And then when she picks it up, she's smart ass that she is, she picks it up and she says, look daddy, I'm capable. <laughs> so, yeah, it's about remembering that we are capable to meet any circumstance or any situation, and we know the answer already, we just don't like it. <laughs> we don't. We don't like it. It's inconvenient. Usually the answer is inconvenient. We've got to get up off our seats. You know? We've got to take, you know, we've got to take responsibility for our, for our stuff. You know? And that's always inconvenient. In a culture, that's always about, oh, don't worry about your stuff today. Put it off to tomorrow. You know? Come play. Listen to the music. Drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> Any other questions?
So, after a lifetime, and whatever your lifetime is, after a lifetime of habitually behaving in a particular way, reacting every time to a given stimulus or trigger in the same way, <coughs> can you see why I say you need to commit to meditation? You need to commit to training yourself to relearning how to not indulge the story, just take care of business. <clears throat> I was talking to my father about this one day, and he's 85 years old, and you know, what, what did Mark, was it Mark Twain? Yeah, was it Mark Twain who said, my father was very stupid, but as I got older, how did he say that? Anybody remember? Something about when I was 20, right. I can't remember yeah. the rest of it, when I, when I was 20, my, my father didn't know anything. And yeah. Like, and then as I got older, he got smarter. Yeah. <laughs> and so this was one of those moments for me. And we were talking about his habitual reaction, being in the trucking business all his life, his habitual reaction is whenever there's a crisis, it's, it's to always go to the same place. You know, he always goes to that fight or flight place. And he finally admitted after, you know, the years that I've known him, he finally admitted, I learned that somewhere in my childhood, he said to me that day. And I, at that moment, everything shut down on me. And I was just so stunned by it. And he said, I got, I got to really relearn that. I got to really learn how to react differently. And I said, well, you've got about 20 more years, maybe less. Get to work. <laughs> so, you know, unfortunately, that's what happens for most of us. Most of us finally stop and ask ourselves, is this real? When we're either, you know, we got very little time to live in reality, or, again, some crisis hits us and we got no choice but to wake up and live in reality but we need to do it. Every day we need to visit the chair or the cushion. It can be in a, I don't care where you do it, it can be in a park, somewhere where you, again, have minimal distraction. And this is why training at a Zen monastery is ideal. There's no distractions there. There's nothing that's gonna draw you away except the stuff in your head. And so you visit the cushion every single day and you examine your life. Spirituality is examining my life and learning from that examination, or what Dogen called the study of the self. So <coughs> Dogen's famous saying went like this. He said, this self I call myself is an illusion, and ego does not exist. Zen is the study of this self that does not exist. How do we study the self, he went on to say? By forgetting the self. Once we have forgotten the self, then we are enlightened, he said, by the myriad of things. And what he meant by that is when we have finally trained ourselves to not to listen to this self that doesn't exist as if it's telling us the truth, if you will, then wherever we go, we will find contentment. Because the story is, no, not good enough, isn't it? The story is, no, you need more. No, you've got to do it better. No, when more and better doesn't work, then you got to get something different. And the only problem with that is that once you get something different, then you want more. And when that starts to fail, oh, got to get something better. 
and it's this vicious cycle around and around. So we examine how habitually we go there all the time. Our first re reaction, our first solution always is to run, to either fight or flee. So by running, I mean, again, getting something different. Part of the studying of the self that can only take place on the cushion, we know the profound or the more obvious ways we move out of the present moment. What we need to know, and that is why I titled tonight, Pieces in the Details. What we need to learn is the more subtle way we are not present. The more subtle ways we are not present. And as I said earlier, I gave you an example. Whenever I am thinking about how terrible my life is or you know, I'm feeling fearsome, I have moved out of the present, you see? Or whenever I immediately react to some trigger, some problem, by going to that place of disaster, I've moved out of the present moment. We need to discover, and again, we can only do that through meditation, the more subtle forms of what I call abandonment. You know, people in the, in the psychotherapy field talk a lot about how abandonment's a big issue in their office. But we need to realize that the first person who ever abandoned us was ourself. I was the first person to abandon me on the day that I was convinced that I had to become something or someone someone else told me I should be. And that's true about all of us. So it wasn't our parents who abandoned us, or a friend, or a relative, or whatever. We were the first person to abandon ourselves. You know see? And we need to see that. And we need to see how we repeat that every time. For example, every time you go to a fearful place and are convinced that you can't handle it, you've abandoned yourself. Because what do you do? You leave yourself in that fearful place and run. You know? But the old saying applies. You can run, but you can't hide. Because wherever you go, that's where the problem will be. If, if the problem is within you and the solution is within you, where do you think you're going to go? You know? I tell the story of one of my oldest and dearest friends and monk. <coughs> She's not here tonight. She went to Florida. She went somewhere different. And, um, <laughs> so, uh, and I often talk about, with, particularly with the new stu students, when we sit around and have war stories, I talk about the training back then, which was the training she and some others uh, in, <coughs> in the society had gone through. I was much younger then and more willing to really be much stricter back then. Now I'm too old for that stuff. And so it was really heavy-duty training. I mean, it was regular that, uh, that people, I knew which ones they were, and she was one of them, who would regularly break down and cry and tell me they can't make it, they can't take it. And on this particular day, that's what she was telling me. I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I just cannot do this anymore. And she, I let her tell me her story, and she was quite surprised by my, my response when I said, okay, well, there's the door. You can go. And in that moment, whatever happened for her, she tells this story, so it's not my story. In that moment, whatever happened for her, and it was a beautiful moment for both of us. She looked at me, all that 
fear and worryment and, and incapability dropped from her face. You could see her energy changed and everything. And she looked at me and she said, Roshi, where am I going to go? <laughs> and she's been with me now for nearly 27 years. She's still in the good fight, if you will. So when we realize there's nowhere to go, we drop anchor and we take care of business. And then as Mark Nepo's wonderful story suggests to us, one day we're going to look at where we are and we're going to see the exotic paradise, which was always there. But we had to somehow lose sight of it in order to refine it. You know, it's like the old saying, you know, <coughs> you don't know what you got until it's gone. You know, see? It's like that. But you don't have to wait until then is what I'm saying. Any questions? Yes, sweetheart. You're talking about abandonment, and I can see that in terms of um, we abandon ourselves, but I, I just couldn't help thinking beyond adults and thinking of children that are maybe abandoned by one or both parents. Uh-huh. Then I mean, how can you say that a child abandons themselves. I mean, they're innocent. Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't suggest that people don't abandon us. I've got abandonment issues also. But what I'm saying to you is that the first person who abandoned us is ourselves. We, not like we consciously do it, but when the child is somehow convinced that their whole value is in becoming who either the parents or someone else tell them they should be, and they choose that, that's a, that's a form of abandonment. And until we recognize our own abandonment, we can't deal with theirs. Because the experience of abandonment will remain with us until we deal with ourselves. So, you know, <coughs> again, Shakespeare Buddha said it. To thine own self, always be true. Okay? Now, he said that because he understood we're not. You see? You know, how many times in the course of the day do we, yes, I'm going to use this word, compromise who we are, our truth, and what we really mean to just keep the peace, or to get approval, or to get accepted. That is a form of abandonment. And when we go to such length to pick a career and pick a lifestyle that we never really wanted, but everybody said we should, that's called prostitution. See? And, you know, in the course of my own spiritual journey, that being true to myself, you know, is something I was fortunate to learn very young. You know, you ask my father about me, you know, which some people have, and he'll say, how was he when he was a kid? And he'll say, he's an ornery little bastard. He never listened to anybody, you know? And he's right. Now my daughter's the same way. <laughs> Isn't karma a bitch? <laughs> you know? But I'm grateful she's that way. You see? Because, you know, how can I expect others to remain true in their relationship with me if I'm not? And we know it. We know when someone else is not being who they truly are. And that really is the source of our mistrust. Because what all of us want is authenticity. You know, yesterday I took her to Storyland, and <coughs> she was wearing 
a Hello Kitty jacket. And so we're at this one uh, uh, thing. It was, I forget what the story was. And the, so she was watching it, and all of a sudden, a bunch of little kids came up to watch it too. And this very little, <coughs> she had to be no more than maybe three, I think two, little girl came right up the side of her, and she was wearing a Hello Kitty jacket. And my daughter saw it, and she first jumped to me, and she said, Daddy, she's wearing a Hello Kitty jacket. And the little girl turned around and saw that my daughter was wearing a Hello Kitty jacket, and they hugged and kissed each other. Oh. <laughs> okay? We all laughed, of course, we adults. And what did my daughter want me to do? Find out where they live. I want to go see her. <laughs> you see? And what did she really want to go see? What did she really want to be in the presence of? Authenticity. You know, this was not some learned behavior. We learn differently, don't we? Hmm. God forbid if you go up and hug and kiss a stranger, you know. But they didn't have any problem with it. She, she saw the Hello Kitty, this little one saw it, and they were like, oh! <laughs> and they were hugging and kissing each other. And then she wanted me to get their address so that we could go visit them. <laughs> In fact, she thought, she couldn't understand why I didn't know where they lived. Okay? I said, well, let's go see her. I, I don't <laughs> Well, why not? Because <laughs> her mother never hugged me, I guess. I don't know. So, but that's, you know, we all, we know what's authentic and we know what's not. And as a friend of mine used to say, on the, on the path to liberation, on the path of, you know, being true to yourself, you begin by being authentic about your own inauthenticity. You say we need to get authentic about our own inauthenticity. Then we, uh, that moment I think of is called enlightenment is also a moment when we rediscover who we truly are. Well, that's what, this, that's what the sutras say. It's about discovering your original self, realizing who you truly are, awakening to that person again, and living that. Now be very careful. If you think you're sitting there thinking about who that person is, that's not the person I'm talking about. Okay, because that person's never going to be in the story. Never going to be in the story. So you got to get out of the story to find out who you truly are. See? I just wonder about. Um, I have the occasion, and I think you and I have spoken about this. Have the occasion to work with the mentally ill, and um, uh, many of them are where they are due to issues of severe abandonment or severe cruel abuse, physical yeah. abuse, mental abuse. And so, uh, <coughs> I, 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 I just, I couldn't help but think that. Yeah. Uh, you know, that some of us are so fortunate that we can come to the realization that we are responsible for abandoning ourselves and yet... We, we are fortunate. And we have other individuals that are <coughs> stuck. I will never get there, maybe in, in another lifetime, but maybe not this one. I think they, they would get there if we got our stuff together and then knew how to help them. We don't know how to help them, because well, we don't know how to help ourselves. We do, we just, some of us choose not to. Yeah. Like I said, you always know the solution, you just don't like it. You see? Because in order to truly rediscover oneself, and to be that person authentically and wholly in every moment, something's got to change in the way you live your life. And we don't want to do that. And that's the whole problem with the nation. 
That's, that's why we're stuck. That's why we are where we are right now, because we don't want to change our paradigms that have, you know, kind of like decayed. They're, they're like out of, they're not real anymore, you know? It's like the American dream. There is no American dream anymore. I don't know if there ever really was, you know? Well, I think there are rules for some and rules for Oh, well, that's a political story. Well, Not tonight. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> I right, will take a brief intermission, and then when we come back, I want to take a look at what I call the uh, survival kit for living authentically and being present. Someone leave me a brownie. <laughs> <laughs> So I often say to people, and some of you have heard me say it in past presentations, that the validity of what we did here tonight or do here tonight shows up after the night is over. Because none of this stuff matters, none of this stuff works if we are not going to apply it. And when we talk about being present to the moment, being here and now, and back to Beth's question about dependent origination, when we understand that everything has a source that generates a particular effect, a cause and effect is how the universe operates. I think that one of the quickest ways to train oneself in being present to the here and now has to do with something we just barely touched upon and that I will touch upon again when I give you the survival list. <coughs> and it's what Mark Nepo calls to marry one's soul. Being true to who we are means carrying our spirit like a candle in the center of our darkness. If we are to live without silencing and numbering essential parts of who we are, a vow must be invoked and upheld with oneself. If we are ever going to truly be present to our life, the same commitments we pronounce when embarking on a marriage can be understood internally as a devotion to the care of one's soul. To have and to hold, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. This means staying committed to your inner path. This means never separating from yourself when things get tough or confusing. This means accepting and embracing all your faults and limitations. It means loving yourself no matter how others see you. It means cherishing the unchangeable radiance that lives within you no matter the cuts and bruises along the way. It means binding your life with a solemn pledge to the truth of your own soul. It is interesting that the nautical definition of marry is, quote, to join two ropes <coughs> end to end by interweaving their strands, interweaving their strands. To marry one's soul suggests that we interweave the life of our spirit with the life of our psychology, the life of our heart with the life of our mind, the life of our faith and truth with the life of our doubt and anxiety. And just as two ropes that are married create a tie that is twice as strong, when we marry our humanness to our spirit, we create a life that is doubly strong 
in the world. And, and uh, what I'm about to share with you in a moment, uh, you can get a copy of with this month's newsletter. So if you're not on our mailing list, get on our mailing list and we'll make sure that uh, it's sent to you as well. It'll be going out on Monday, I think. So one of the things I talk about in this month's newsletter in my writing, and it's already on my blog. If you know my blog, you can go and start to read it has to do with one of the other myths of spiritual practice in a common age. And it has to do with this separation we often do with our humanity and spirituality. And Mark Nepo's words ring loud and clear for me, that <coughs> if we are ever going to progress in any spiritual practice, and, the, and, and it's important that you understand that the position that I hold is that the answers and solutions to the world problems are not an economic one, they are a spiritual one. We are seeing the growth of numbers of human beings on this planet, and by a certain year, there are going to be about 9 billion people on the planet, more human beings, but less humanity. And we need to turn that around. And by that, <coughs> I mean we need to take heed of Nepo's words. And the surest way to be present to my life is to always be true to myself, to be true to my heart especially. And I'm convinced, as the Buddha was, that deep down when we cut through all the stuff and we do the surgery that's necessary to strip away everything that is unnecessary in our life, we discover that we all fundamentally love and want to be loved. And that's the end of the story. As I say to my daughter, that's it, end of story if you will. So being true to oneself involves, as Nepo suggests, <coughs> interweaving the humanness of our, of our personality as well as those you know, uh, that attempt in most people's spiritual practice to be some kind of divine figure. More accurately, I say we need to stop trying to be angels and deities and be what we are, human beings and embrace our humanity. And when we do that, when we embrace our heart and we are willing to examine our life, which leads to taking care of ourselves, we bring a powerful change to the world, whether we know it or not. But in the meantime, as I say in my newsletter, I quote Mark Twain when he says, the secret of getting ahead is getting started. So in order for you to progress in your spiritual practice, whatever that may be for you, uh, you need to get started and you need to stay the course. You need to keep going. And if you don't apply these teachings, if you don't resolve in your mind to leave and apply these teachings, they're worthless. They have no, no power because you are the power and it is in your commitment to apply them that makes them powerful. So the first thing I suggest to you, and these are a bunch of stuff that came out of my own meditation the day that I was writing this uh, uh, particular blog. First, you heard me mention this earlier tonight, stop trying to change yourself, especially when yourself is constantly changing. So when the Buddha teaches that there is no self, he means that there is no fixed identity that we can point to and say, that is me. Because who we are, and you can see this, you know, I often say when I was eight years old, I was convinced that a red fire truck that shot water, water was going to make my life complete. Well, that wouldn't work for me today. You see? So this self I call myself is constantly changing. 
And one of the other things about a life committed to always changing yourself, thinking there's, you need to become more, or you need to become better, or you need to become different, uh, is that whenever we're doing that, we're not present to our life as it is, who we really are. Once again, we are trying to manufacture or contrive this person we think we should be. And whenever we're committed to that rather than the opposite, forget the present moment. Forget the here and now, because we are always in the future, trying to become more, trying to become better, trying to become different. And that particular point of view for ego is that the solution to my life is somewhere down the line when I do become more, when I do become better, when I do become different. So stop it. There are always going to be obstacles in your life. People who will not agree with you or like you, don't be one of them. So again, that comes back to being true to myself. Uh, in, in the training that I've been giving people for, for 39 years, I talk a great deal about having to drop judgment and criticism, whether it is about yourself or someone else. That if you're, if you're going to continue to indulge the story that is always critical or judgmental, forget spiritual practice. So again, in order to get started, as Mark Twain says, we need to drop that habitual behavior. There are always going to be, you will find enough blame coming at you, enough criticism coming at you in the world from others. You need to not be one of those people. You need to not be one of those people. And this is what the Buddha taught and what His Holiness talks a great deal about when he talks about compassion. When Buddhists talk about compassion, the Buddha was really clear. He said, forget compassion to others. Don't believe you're being compassionate to others unless you're compassionate to yourself. Compassion begins with yourself. And to be compassionate towards oneself is to fully embrace my full humanity. That includes not only my strengths and the things that other people like yourself may be attracted to, but especially the stuff that I'm uh, not too good at. You know, and we do that by dropping the blame, shame, criticizing, and judgmental game. And if you're not willing to do that, forget spirituality. <clears throat> Start with loving yourself unconditionally before you try it with someone else. Then loving someone else unconditionally will be a cakewalk, except sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and we need to accept that. And one of the ways that I've worked that out as I always tell my daughter, I absolutely unconditionally love you, but there are times I'm not going to feel that way. And that is also part of spiritual practice. I talked about this early on this evening. We so often go to the same place every time we're feeling out of sorts, that something's wrong with my life, something's wrong with me. To love oneself unconditionally is to have that experience going on in my body and not go to that place. So, you're not feeling all the sorts today. Okay? Use that. Learn from that. Discover what that is about for you. But it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. A very dear friend of mine who I regularly counsel about her own self-esteem, I tell her she goes there every single time, right away, something's lacking in her. That's the first place she goes has nothing to do with anybody else but the lack about herself. And she always goes there. And that is a habitual behavior. That is what she learned. Much of our habitual behaviors are behaviors we learned early on 
to survive what's going on, to survive what's going on. And when someone else criticized us and judged us when we were very little, we survived that criticism and judgment, believe it or not, by accepting the criticism and judgment, you see, by accepting the criticism and judgment. So the practice that I give my students often and people who I'm coaching or counseling is this. The next time a critical or judgmental thought, either about yourself or others, show up, just simply notice it and say, well, there's another lie, and move on, and move on. Stop trying to avoid the mundane. The mundane is the sacred. Give it your full attention. And again, I'm teaching my daughter this. When you wake up in the morning, make your bed. Make your bed. That is spirituality. That is holiness. You take care of the house because the house takes care of you. The mundane, which is <coughs> quintessential, central for much of Zen spirituality, has to do with cutting the carrots, as you hear, and and cleaning the laundry, and treating it as the sacred. Take no activity for granted. Treat everything as holy, and everyone as holy, including yourself. So make your own bed. Take care of your house because you live in it, and so forth. The mundane is the sacred, and we need to realize that if we're ever going to grow. This is a tough one. Stop seeking pleasure wherever it is you look for it. There's nothing wrong with pleasure, however, but the kind of pleasure that remains with us are those moments and experiences that show up naturally, not dependent upon any specific circumstances or situation or which needs to be contrived or manufactured. Too much of our life is spent planning what we're going to do on the weekend to get pleasure. Too much. First, you need to know that when you're planning your life, life is passing you by. Second, you need to know that anytime I need to contrive or manufacture pleasure in my life, that is always temporary. The stuff that, you know, what most people call or identify with when they say they feel joy, they feel joyful for their lives, that's the pleasure that lasts, and that stuff happens naturally happens naturally. For example, you know, since my daughter was born, I can tell you that, you know, every moment is pleasurable in my life because she says something or does something that makes me laugh. You see, really laugh. Never be sure. This is a huge thing for so many people in this room and so many people on a spiritual path. The myth of contemporary spirituality is that spirituality is supposed to answer the questions. That keeps us stuck. That keeps us stuck. A dear friend of mine used to say, understanding is the booby prize. That keeps us stuck. So never be sure about anything. To be sure is to ensure you really don't know. You see? So we need to see how much of life is robbed from us by our need to be sure before we live it. You see? Our need to be sure before we live it. 
Those of you who know me know that about eight years ago I bought a motorcycle. I had one when I was a kid, and I bought a motorcycle and haven't rid, uh, driven it for some time now since my heart attack. But I used to go on it all the time at this time of the year, the freezing cold. And I enjoyed going in the freezing cold because it involved having to, you know, dress correctly and, and challenge myself in it. But one of the things I would do when I would go on long distance trips is I would just take off without any planned path, without any planned highway, and made it a point to go down the roads that I'd never been down before, and I will tell you, it was always a pleasure. Usually the most satisfying and the most fulfilling experiences in your life have to do with the stuff you don't know. Stop being so obsessed with having to be sure. You know, I grew up in my family, when we moved to Jersey, we always had a pool. And if you know anything about having a pool, every summer you get excited, you're excited, oh, they're going to be able to open the pool, we're going to go swimming and everything else. And then the first day, hot summer comes and you run outside and what do you do? You stick your toe in the water. You know what I'm saying? See it? <laughs> Jump in. You might die. That'll be a powerful experience. One you never know <laughs> Charlotte Joko Beck, probably one of the greatest American Zen masters to ever lived on her deathbed, was heard to say right before she breathed her last breath, Wow, this is wonderful too. Mm. Never be sure. To be sure is to ensure you don't really know. Do things without always having to know how they'll turn out in advance. If you're wondering why life feels so blah, there it is. There it is. It's, you know, I, I watch my daughter around my mother, her grandmother, and even though she has... Uh, uh, you know, early stages of Alzheimer's going on, uh, she's still pretty much present when my daughter's with her. And when my daughter's with me, it's like all risk. We live risk. When we play, it's like, you know, she's, if you see the photograph I took of her yesterday when she went down the Jack and Jill slide, she's going down with her hands in the air. She didn't want to hold anything. She's that kind of personality and so forth. So everything's risk. She wants to climb, I say climb. She falls down, she falls down. That's how you learn, and so forth. She gets around my mother, my, no, don't. You're going to hurt yourself. And I can watch my daughters. She, like, her whole experience is like, get me out of here, <laughs> and so forth. If you want the excitement and the wonder of life to show up again in your life, stop having to know in advance what's going to turn out in the end. And this is one of the reasons why people never commit to really commit to a consistent drop anchor spiritual practice because you want to know. You know, I tell the story, he became a dear friend of mine after he stopped being a student. And um, even while he was a student, we started to develop a really good friendship. And, but the first day he showed up was, prior, uh, was after a call he made to the monastery. And one of the other monks, I was watching a football game, and one of the other monks came in with the phone in his hand out like this, and he said, Roshi, you got to talk to this guy. 
I don't want to talk to him. I'm like, well, what's he wants to come here. I will tell him. That he wants to know an answer to something. So I said, okay. So I get on the phone and I said to the guy, what do you want to know? I want to know that if I come there and meditate with you, will I be enlightened and how long will it take? <laughs> <laughs> and I was watching a football game and didn't have any time for that nonsense. So I said to him, for you, never. <laughs> well, he did come after all, and he ended up staying for a long time, and we became best of friends, him and I. But that's, you know, there it is, you know. How long is it going to take me to get enlightened, and is it really going to happen? Knock it off. <coughs> Do things without always having to know how they'll turn out in advance. Here's a neat one that I've really, you know, I only came up with this in the last four years, obviously. Forget the adults. Spend as much time as possible with children. Forget the adults. When you take a look at what's available to you, when you spend as much time as possible with a kid, the adults lose out. At least that's my experience. So whenever I want to, like, you know, after a day of counseling and listening to everybody's story and everything, I go play with my daughter, you know. I run around with her, you see? So forget the adults. Spend as much time as you can with children. Life is passing, <coughs> life is passing you by while you're planning on how you're going to live it. Forget the plans. Get up in the morning, get in your car, go for a run, go for a walk. Just go through the day doing it as it comes along and watch what happens. And watch what happens. If you're bored, that'll all <coughs> go away. Now here's another tough one. Take wrong turns, fail terribly, lose your reputation, and never be afraid to do what you think is right, especially if your own well-being or the well-being of a person or an animal is at risk. Take wrong turns and fail terribly. How much of our life, again, is robbed of us in our fear to fail? in our fear to make mistakes. So one of the practices I did early on was at our earliest Zendo, which was in Riverton, New Jersey, and we didn't have the money for the Japanese tatami mats back then. So it was this hardwood floor that my students regularly cleaned and polished so that when you walked on it, you were going down. <laughs> so we would be sitting and meditating, and one of the practices that we have in Zen meditation is walking meditation. We do like a period of seated meditation, then we get up and we circumambulate the Zendo. And always, regularly, <coughs> someone getting up would go down. And they would hear me either say, that was a great fall, or you gotta practice that better. Falling, that is. <laughs> Don't be afraid to fall. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Stop trying to manage your life in such a way that everything is safe and secure. A life of trying to manage it that way when, you when at the end of it you die is stupid. Stupid. Nobody gets out of here safe. Okay? So forget about it. <coughs> when you truly are your own best friend, you will not be afraid to be alone. In fact, you will make time to be alone, which is meditation, <coughs> to do the things which nurture you, which is retreat from life and take care of yourself, and always learn something new about yourself and the world, 
which is what we call evolve and renew. <coughs> you, I'm sure everyone in this room has either heard it from someone else or read it. Modern science, modern medical science has discovered that it's the people who are regularly learning something new, involving themselves in learning something new that avoid things like senility and, and the other stuff that comes with real old age. So again, <coughs> when you are truly your own best friend, you will not be afraid to be alone. And anyone who cannot be alone with themselves cannot be with anyone else. Anyone who cannot be alone with themselves cannot be with anyone else. And one of the powerful things about Zen meditation is that you can be in a Zendo filled with 20, 30 people for hours on end as we do, as we will do in December during our four or five day meditation called Orohatsu and still feel like you are the only one in that room. And that's purposefully set up that way because you will only become your truest best friend when you want to be with yourself and can be alone. So you can eliminate, <coughs> you can eliminate all of that difficulty with nobody to go out with tonight and nowhere to go by learning to love yourself just as the way you are. And last but not least, if you must change the world, first be the change you want in the world. Otherwise, shut up. <laughs> Monday morning quarterbacks. I can remember as a kid going to every Eagles game in Franklin Field. My father would take me all the time. He always had season tickets and still does. And most of the time, the fun part was not what was going on in the field. It was listening to these drunken Philadelphia guys who all knew what the quarterback should be doing. <laughs> and I always wondered why they weren't on the field. You see? So if you need to change the world, change yourself first, otherwise shut up, because you're probably just drunk with yourself, you see. And finally I say to you, I got, I got this, I read this one day and just broke up laughing, so I had to share it. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, except for bears, bears will kill you. <laughs> so just remember that. <laughs> That's life. <laughs> so before I let you go tonight, I want to uh, make an announcement. Next month there will be a special event happening here, and we strongly encourage you to arrive early to get a seat. The monks and I will be transforming this room into a Japanese tea house, and we will be performing the Japanese tea ceremony for you. Following the actual <coughs> ceremony, we will have an opportunity to talk about uh, tea which comes out of Zen. Uh, it was the first tea masters were both the Chan masters, which is the Chinese word for Zen, in China and then in Japan where like everything else the Japanese do, it was refined and perfected. It is the second best thing to meditation that I love doing. And it is a beautiful meditation and training in full awareness of the moment. You cannot serve a bowl of tea and experience the peace that anyone can know through a bowl of tea without being mindful and fully aware of being present. So if you've never seen it before, come and see it next month. If you have seen it before, come and see it done the right way. And <coughs> again, the monks and I will be performing it, and then I'll be talking about the four principles of the tea ceremony 
and how they apply to spiritual practice and how you can apply it to the mundane activity such as offering a cup of coffee or a bowl of tea. I can remember when I was, and actually this is where I first got my, I got my first inspiration to study tea, which I've studied now for nearly 30 years and, and practiced. But my first inspiration came from growing up again in an Italian household. And it didn't have anything to do with tea, because back in those days, I don't think I even remember the word tea coming up in our vocabulary. But how every time people came to visit, my mother offered them a cup of coffee. She always had a pot of coffee, fresh pot of coffee waiting. And she offered them a cup of coffee. And how, no matter how they were when they came into the house, when they sat down to drink that cup of coffee, it was like just a wonderful thing to watch. So as Senriku said, all can find peace in a bowl of tea if you know how to make it and to offer it. So come next month and discover how to make it and how to offer it. If you're not on the mailing list, get on the mailing list. The sheets are out there for you to do that, and you'll get our monthly newsletter, including this and the rest of it, uh, coming out in November. We have some new events uh, starting in November at the monastery, and we are going to do two liturgies on a Monday night, two, two separate Monday nights on Veterans Day, and a liturgy of thanksgiving on the Monday prior to Thanksgiving. So come and join us as we practice gratitude, which is another powerful spiritual practice. And with that, I'm truly grateful that you came out tonight. Thank you for the privilege. Uh Oh yes, Tuesday night meditation. I'm here every Tuesday between six to seven, The numbers are growing, the room's filling up, so come on out and sit with us.